Welcome to episode 22 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Barantha. My name is Jörg. And my name is Ludovic, a.k.a. Lord Abdul. And today we have the immense pleasure of uh, welcoming Nick Brook, who has uh, so many hats that he will probably spend the next 10 minutes listing them all. Who are you and what do you do, Nick? Oh, hi, Ludo. It's an immense pleasure to be back on your podcast. Um, I'm one of Chaosium's community ambassadors. I specialize in pod, which is print on demand, and in the Johnstown Compendium, which is the community content program for creators to do their own thing with Greg Stafford's wonderful world of Glorantha and with the RuneQuest role-playing game. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the Johnstown Compendium print editions would probably not have seen uh, the light of day without your input uh, about like how to make things look good in print. That's very kind of you to say so, and I think it's also probably true. <laughs> But you have also a lot more uh, geek cred to your arc or to, uh, yeah, I don't know what the metaphor is. Uh, yeah, you have uh, many Johnstown companion book uh, of your own and lots of things even before that. Of my own and collaborations with friends. Um, mm -hmm. So, you, you know, I mean, the, the Guide to Glamour, I don't have many words in there, but I arranged all the ones that are uh, Life of Moonside. I wrote maybe a fifth, the quarter of it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, the Sandheart <laughs> books, I wrote very little bits um, for two of the four books, but I did the layout for everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and in those. But I've also written my own RuneQuest scenarios and mini campaigns. So there's the Duel at Dangerford and Black Spear. And my most recent one, Crimson King, which is great fun and very lunar. So if you like hearing what I have to say about the lunars today, I would recommend you rush out and get yourself a copy of Crimson King. Give it to your RuneQuest GM. <laughs> don't read it. Let them play you through it and then read it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, GMs, if that means you end up with lots of copies of Crimson King, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we have you here because uh, this is an episode on the Lunars and the Lunar Empire, and you are the uh, probably the foremost uh, specialist um, that you can find out there. Who are the other three? <laughs> yes. Uh, you have like a long history. Can you give us like quick, uh, a, a quick recap of your, you know, two or three decades with the Lunars? Uh, two or three, very good. Um, yes, I can. Um, essentially, my involvement with the Lunars came about after I joined David Hall's um, Reaching Moon Megacorp, the uh, organization, the disorganization that produced the Tales of the Reaching Moon magazine. Now, um, for reasons best known to himself, David adopted an overtly pro-Lunar stance as the editorial line of the magazine, which was, after all, called Tales of the Reaching Moon. We're not exactly trying to be neutral there. Uh, this was probably in two things. I think it was a reaction to the previous standard bearer for RuneQuest fandom, which was an overtly storm bull thing called Parvik Tales that was very much in the um, drink beer, kill lots of chaos things, maybe some of the Malunas, who cares, mold. Uh, and also, of course, it's because David is very, very English. You think I'm English? You haven't met David. He's extremely English. And we all know that the the empire um, is going to be the, the, the protagonists in the empire, the evil empire, are always going to be English character actors, whether it's the Roman <laughs> Empire played by English people. If it's the uh, evil galactic empire in a galaxy far, far away, officers are all English people. We, we, we English have a gift 
for being <laughs> evil. If you want to see English people being extremely evil, I recommend the uh, Bollywood movie RRR. It is superb. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, heard, I've heard many things about it. But um, oh, uh, to, okay. to go back to English actors playing uh, evil fire people, uh, wasn't wasn't it like Ben-Hur, Ben-Hur where they wanted to explicitly cast British actors for the for the Romans? Of, of course, it, it, it's the way you do these things. The Brits make the best evil empires. We we had one of our own. It's, it's yeah. not around anymore. You may have heard, um, but we also make very good stuff for evil empires. So uh, this was a thing that just appealed to David, and he did it as a way of winding people up. Because obviously, as we all we all know, we're all adults. We know that most RuneQuest groups are player characters who are definitely not Luna. They are all kinds of barbarians. Uh, but nowadays, Jeff Richard flinches when he say barbarians, so I'll be doing it a lot on this podcast. They're all kinds of barbarians. They're Praxian barbarians. They're all anti-barbarians. They're Balazaring barbarians. You name it. And mm-hmm. the one thing they agree on is that they don't like paying taxes or benefiting from civilization. So that is um the 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 way that you can um annoy every runequest player in the world is by being pro luna Uh, (laughs) but the other thing that is very important is that every runequest group does have one person who really wants to understand the lunas and that's the poor long-suffering game master if you're game mastering a runequest group and you haven't learned how much fun you can have by doing villain monologues at your players or by portraying the lunar centurion the lunar priestess the lunar sultan the lunar sultan's idiot son these characters in your game you really haven't lived it's brilliant fun but in order to do that fluently you have to have a sense of who these people are what they sound like how annoying they can be to talk to now fortunately for you i've been perfecting being an annoying lunar for more than 30 years. <laughs> and I will be delighted to share some of the irritating, bland ways we palm off our monstrosity and pretend to be civilized over the rest of this podcast. So please remember, kids, this isn't real. It's a story. It's a game we tell stories. <laughs> the lunars aren't real. Um, they didn't kill your ancestors. Those ancestors aren't real. They're just dice rolls, okay? Please don't get too het up when I start to sound reasonable and you feel yourself converting. It's only a game. <laughs> you, you, you mean we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, uh, get too angry online and on forums? Uh, that's 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 a new. Uh... There's some odd folk out there. I mean, we we brought out a rough guide to glamour, as you know. You podcasted with us about it, and somebody yeah. gave it a one star review, and it's like. Okay, we have many theories about why that might have happened. Um, my favorite is that he was trying to buy a guide to rough glamour and felt that whatever he bought, well, obviously he couldn't tell you why he wasn't happy with his purchase, but he wasn't happy with his purchase. But, you know, realistically, it's quite conceivable. Somebody buys our book and says, oh, this makes it out as if the Lunas are human beings with a belief system and an organization and stuff. And all I wanted was stats of people to kill. So Chris Gidlow comes out with his Brilliant book. His gold best-selling, I should say, yeah. Citizens of the Lunar Empire, and it's an apartment block, and it's full of Lunars, and there's probably only about two of them you want to kill, and one <laughs> of them is a small child. Um, so it's like you, this is not a, a, a lootable dungeon. This is this is people. These are ordinary people. They're trying to get along. They don't spend their whole day worshipping chaos entities and then their nights murdering adventurers. They are ordinary 
people like yeah, you and, and me. And, and and it goes back to one of the pillars of the original RuneQuest, which is like everybody's people, everybody's got their own culture and their own reasons, and all that. So it you know it makes sense. Um, right. And I am here to, to, tonight to talk about the best of those cultures. Veneer of reasonableness and acceptance, because the lunars are very good at that. But you have to remember when I tell you things, what I'm telling you is basically right, and the other people will tell you other things, and they're probably wrong. Of course, you're the guest. I'm I'm going to agree with you. You're the guest. So when we uh, have those like people of Glorantha episodes, uh, we usually start with what would the average RuneQuest Glorantha character know about the Lunars? Um, they killed my granny. Or, or probably my grandfather. Yeah, yeah. When, when when you rolled it on the family history, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they, they made us pay taxes. Um, they were terrible people. And then a few years ago, or maybe just last year, they all got eaten by a dragon. And now it seems we're going to be fighting a war against them, which we'll probably win. Hurrah! That's what <laughs> your average request character knows about the Lunas. Now... If you've been playing RuneQuest longer than that, you've got an immense chip on your shoulder about the Lunars because they used to be strutting around the whole of Sartar and Prax like they owned the place because they owned the place. They had nifty bronze armor and red plumed helmets and red cloaks, and they were very (laughs) superior, and they came across very much like Romans because that's a very easy model for anyone to use. If you want to know what's it like being occupied by an irritatingly reasonable empire... The Romans are it. We don't have a sense of what it would be like being occupied by Neo-Assyrians. There is no great Neo-Assyrian sword and sandal movie. There are biblical movies and people can pretend that they think, oh, it would be like if Sennacherib was ruling us. No, it wouldn't be. You have no sense of that. Um, But you can have a feel for what it's like being occupied by these irritatingly English people who are annoyingly (laughs) reasonable and have a big army full of people who salute and say, sir, yes, sir, and go into people's houses and search them and come out and all they found is a spoon. Um, because this is this is natural. The whole I, Claudius, life of Brian, gladiator continuum, um, Spartacus, if you want to be fancy, of <laughs> um, what's it like living, and, and I include all Spartaci in that, including mm-hmm. the very, very good blood and tits version. That was great fun. I think it was on Stars TV, and I recommend it highly, not just because of um, Lucy Lawless, but what more can I say? Oh, Um, yeah, yeah, you've sold me. There you go. (laughs) So uh, anyhow, yes, uh, we know what it's like being occupied by a superior civilizing power that um, has overwhelming force, but the Lunars are more annoying than that. So, yeah. They're great fun. And if you've been playing RuneQuest a long time, you're used to the fact that the Lunars are are running the show and um, have been repressing you in an irritatingly civilized way. <laughs> they don't kill all the barbarians. They don't crucify everyone. There's a, obviously a prospect that they could. If you cross a line, if you get to the point where they say, well, sod it all, we'll send in the bat or you know, we'll, we'll kill everyone in the Colibar tribe, they could do that and they've probably got the might to make it happen. But they don't, and that's one of the irritating things about them. They aren't the Gotterdämmerung devouring it all evil empire of your your fantasies and your fears. Unless you happen to live where they want to build a grand new temple. <laughs> um, that was a desolate mountain. I, I, I don't know quite what you're saying. Yes, there, yes, I, it was a desolate mountain uh, when they started building. It uh, used to be a tribal area before. Yeah, yeah, but we moved them out. We got lovely new homes. they got relocation tickets and um Uh, as his parents say they they got relocation incentives 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there, there is a bit of, you know, repression here and there when the barbarians get very unruly. Uh, that's all in Sotar. Uh, to some degree, it's also in Prax. What would uh, the other core homelands know, like um, Ezrolia or Grazelanders? Oh, Ezrolia is great fun because, of course, Ezrolians are just coming out of a civil war in which for a while the dominant faction was the Red Earth faction, which had sensibly aligned itself with the Lunar Empire as the coming power mm -hmm. uh, in much the same way that the Earth goddesses in Tarsh al ally themselves with the mm -hmm. Lunar Empire. And they've realized that there's similarities between the dying and ri rising year king of the old fertility rituals that were banned by the pharaoh. I can, I can hear Jeff wincing from here. Um, the pharaoh. <laughs> the the god king. The god king, please. There's no mention yes, of pharaoh what, in that, the... That, that, that's what some people call him now. So anyway, Belintar the pharaoh <laughs> banned the year king rituals. He banned them so much that Jeff actually cut them out from the Glorantha source book, which was very strange. So I think it's only right to go on about them a bit because they were written by Greg Stafford and were a fundamental part of his vision of how the earth cults work. So the year kings, uh, the idea was that you've got a king, you kill him, he dies, the crops flourish, it's all very good. The pharaoh didn't like this and he banned the ritual in Ezra now, the Ezrolians are smart women, and they've worked out that actually the Lunars have also got an emperor who kind of, kind of dies and comes back, and they've got a cycle that dies and comes back, and this stuff's all very aligned. And the Red Earth faction, for a time, was dominant politically in Ezrolia, and then unfortunately got the kick, crap kicked out of them by um, some pirates and barbarians and vagabonds and folk uh, a few years ago. Let's not go into the details. It's all very messy. But there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Ezraelians who piously believe that the lunar way was the right way forward for Ezraelia. And they're still... And it's also better for trade. Uh, absolutely. All kinds of advantages. Now, in my um, head, which is which is mine, and your Glorantha will vary, I use a lot of imagery drawn out of the various Antony and Cleopatra or Caesar and Cleopatra movies, films, Asterix right. comics, you name it. Because the idea that the imperial general is going to marry the sacred queen of this great ancient kingdom in order to consolidate his own personal power is hilarious to me. And it makes you think, as a wide red, negotiating for a more important job in Ezrolia than Moonsun has in Peloria. But let's not go there. That's all wild speculation and will lead to me saying Pharaoh again. And Jeff hates that. <laughs> uh, what about the Grazelanders? Oh, the Grazelanders love the Lunars because the Lunars are great employers. Now, there is one embittered faction of Grazelanders who don't like the Lunars because their, their mother never loved them or something. I can't quite remember the details. And <laughs> she ends up leading a Grazelander suicide squad on horseback to the, the, the unfortunate events at the Temple of the New Moon. Um, Let's yeah. not dwell on that. And uh, the Grazelanders have basically for the last 20 or 30 years been very happy accepting money from the Lunars to act as their auxiliary cavalry, we would probably say, if we were using a Roman or as their reliable barbarian allies otherwise. They have not converted to the Lunar Way. Don't get me wrong. The Grazelanders are extraordinarily religiously fundamentalist. They've got their um, pure horse sunways, and they've got the feathered horse queen's earthways, and they're not going to convert to the lunar way. But they've been good friends to the Empire over the years because the Empire is rich and is dominant, and the Grazelanders don't see why you wouldn't suck up to that. But now that the um, rule is contested, there's a new feathered horse queen coming along. I think she might be King Moriarty's of Tarsh's daughter, if you want to worry about these things. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's all kinds of interesting possibilities in the future. And I know that Argrath is going to be getting over there and trying to marry her in the imminent future of the RuneQuest timeline, because Sartorites have always had a thing about fucking horses. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And since you mentioned Tarsh, uh, this is the last homelands in the core rulebook. So Lunar Tarsh, of course, they're Lunar. So we're going to talk about them just after that. Uh, old Tarsh, however, um, they have uh, they're not very happy. No, no, they're embittered losers, frankly, Ludo. I mean, <laughs> between you and me, they represent the old ways. They, 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 they had a go. They tried to, to, they say, liberate their their homeland and drag it back into a morass of barbarism. They had, they had many goes at it, actually. Blood sacrifice, hilltop altars, all that jazz, <laughs> and they failed. Thank goodness, their savage leader, Palashi Longaxe, was brought to justice by an avenging lunar imperial army we're very good at avenging it's one of the aspects of the lunar way i'd like to you know be aware that there is a religious reason for always smashing people who do us harm um and since then fortunately the old tarshites have been expelled beyond the glow line which marks the good bits of tarsh off from the bad bits of old tarsh <laughs> so they're, they're now sniveling in their dung hills on places like Wintertop and um East Tarsh, which briefly, technically for a while, was called North Sartar, but it's really East Tarsh, as every Tarshite knows, and that's old Tarshites as well as lunar Tarshites. And one of these days, we will surely get it back. I mean, the provincial army is camped just outside Aldercher and about to march south into Sartar as I speak. So, yes, I think <laughs> we can expect some interesting shenanigans there in the near future. I'm speaking in about 1626 here, but yes. Yeah. No, so... um. Yeah, Tarsh within the glow line is, of course, practically an earthly paradise. It's this wonderful civilized kingdom centered on the city of Furthest, which is like a little slice of glamour transport planted into the heart of the provinces. It's a planned model city built by civilized architects. Lots of colonists came from all over Peloria to populate the city of furthest. So it isn't one of those terrible barbarian towns full of people trying to wear togas, right? It's actually a little beacon of civilization in the middle of Tarsh. Yeah. And also, of course, there's the Temple of the Reaching Moon, which spreads and shares the benevolent light of the uh, red moon across the fertile maize fields of <laughs> Lunar Tarsh. Right. So the Lunar Tarsh characters would, of course, know a lot about the, the Lunar Empire. So how about you talk about like first maybe a short history of the lunar empire from its creation up to like recent events um well i know you're very nervous of us overrunning on this show so i'll do my best <laughs> to do as quick as i can thank you and you want specifically the history of the lunar empire rather than the mythology of the lunar empire so i think this story starts in the year 1220 solar solar time um in the early third age in a little dusty desert town called Tarang on the eastern edge of the Pelorian Bowl. In between the mighty Carmanian Empire, which at that time had dominated the river valleys of Peloria, in between them and the high steps on which the Penton horse nomads ravaged around doing horse nomad stuff. So our goddess was reborn as a mortal, um, which is the kind of thing that isn't really meant to happen. A lot of people thought it couldn't happen. They thought that, you know, the gods were fixed and they couldn't change. They couldn't develop. They couldn't do anything new. And they either already were there and everyone knew about them. And they were part of the pattern that we call the Great Compromise, the Arachne Solara's web that binds the universe together. 
or else they weren't, and then they were chaos monstrosities, and they shouldn't be exist. They shouldn't be allowed to exist. But what these seven glorious leaders, these thought leaders, these charismatic revolutionaries, the seven mothers did, was they managed to bring back into the world a goddess who should have been a part of the world all along. Now, we don't know why it was that Orlanth and Yelm, those staunch bastions of the patriarchy, when they stitched up the great compromise that ended the God's Age and brought in the world of time in which everything is trapped as in a spider's web within a decaying ball of entropy and will eventually be consumed, um, which they thought was a good idea. It was the best <laughs> fix they had. Like they say, it's a compromise. Nobody's happy with a compromise, right? I get that. <laughs> um, we don't know why they didn't restore the moon goddess to her rightful place as a queen of heaven. Uh, we can hypothesize that um, Orlanth being a bloke and Yelm being a bloke and both of them being associated with dethroning and casting down the moon goddess from her rightful place as a ruler in the heavens might have just thought, oh, well, let's not let's not deal with that. But the downside of that was that they left a whole bunch of broken fragments of moon goddess lying around in mythology. And what the seven mothers did was they picked her up, dusted her off, reassembled her and brought her into the world of time where she belonged because she was a part of it. So cutting and fascinating story short, 27 years after she was born in Tarang, the Red Goddess was recognized as a goddess by all of the old gods of Glorantha. There was a mighty mystical contest fought as a place called Castle Blue, where they accepted that she was part of the world, was part of the Great Compromise, and belonged in the world as much as any of them did. Then she wrapped the earth around her like a cloak or a cuirass and ascended to hang in the middle air above the Pelorian Basin, rotating, rotating so that she did a full turn every week, turning from dark to light and back to dark again. This is something that, you know, I, I had like a sort of a double take reaction the first time I saw it because I didn't see it the first time I was looking into Glorita. It's that the moon in Glorita, the, the red moon, at least this one, is fixed in the sky. It just rotates in yes. place, yes. but it's it's up there. And, and from most points in the core rulebook homelands, you can look up to the yes. northwest and see her. Yes, basically, that's right. You'd have to travel a very, very long way or go and stand directly behind a tall mountain or something in order not mm -hmm. to see the red moon. She's visible from across most of Rwanda. She turns through a cycle uh, in the course of seven days. The phase of the red moon, you see, depends on whether she's turning her light towards you or not. So while she's turning her light to the south, it's the dark moon in the north. You just have to think of it as like a searchlight sweeping around the map. A bit like Sauron. <laughs> um, not really, no. No, there's not, 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 not many comparisons. No, no, I don't think so. For one thing, Sauron is clearly evil. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So um, the red goddess ascended in the sky. Uh, what happens below besides a giant hole in the ground? Well, we call that the crater, and it's the, at, at the very heart of the Lunar Empire. The city of Glamour, the capital city of the Lunar Empire, is built on the slopes of the crater. You can read a really good guidebook about it, if you like. Uh, it's only a few sales from being a platinum bestseller, which will make me very happy when it tips over that edge. So yeah, go to Glamour, get a copy of the guidebook. You'll each want one so you can scribble your notes on the best restaurants and who not to cause trouble to and stuff like that when you visit. <laughs> but Glamour is the capital of the Lunar Empire. It's a new city. It's a circular city. It was founded 
within the Third Age. It's not one of these ancient cities you hear about. It was built there by Moon Sun himself, the son of the Red Goddess, who is now the ever-reincarnating emperor who has ruled the Lunar Empire for more than, I think, now getting on for 400 years, to be honest. Right. Yeah, yeah, he reincarnates every time he gets killed. Do, do, do people generally know uh, those kind of things about the Red Emperor? Oh, good, goodness, yes, yes, yes. The propaganda version of the Red Emperor is known by everyone because we will tell anyone who listens that the Red <laughs> Emperor, when he, when he dies, he comes back and he's always the same and he always has the same policies. He was the same personality. He looks the same. If you look at any coin, they all look the same. And the wonderful thing is, this is clearly a lie. Because if you look at statues of the Red Emperor, they look different. If you look at the recent Red Emperors, they're called the masks of the Emperor. Why are they called that? Well, because each of them's got a different face. They're clearly different people with different names. They have different pol policies, different personalities. But the Lunars will tell you, oh, no, no, still the same guy. That's We've the always been at war with Eurasia, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the kind of thinking that you can now start bringing into the way you see the Lunars. One of the things you touched on earlier that I think we'd like I'd like to get back to because I haven't had fun kicking it around yet sure. is Lunar Torchlight characters. So can we do that? We'll we'll just yeah. stick, sure. stick yes. a point in there and I'll get back to it later on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there's some fun to be had there. Cool, but crazy. Anyhow. So anyway, the Lunar Empire. So it's it's taken over now from the evil despotic Carmanian Empire that used to run Peloria. Thank goodness. What a liberation. This is so much better than barbarians making piles of skulls everywhere. And the Carmanian Empire had taken over from the Dara Harpens, a fusty, old-fashioned, Mesopotamian-feeling patriarchy, a hydraulic despotism with all these hereditary nobilities and only men allowed to do stuff. That was terrible. Thank goodness we kicked the crap out of all that in our liberating, progressive, feminist way. The Lunar Empire liberated the peoples of Peloria, so now people have many more opportunities in life, many more chances to do things. And it's not all about sacrificing your enemies to the dark gods and building pyramids of skulls, which was what came before them. So when you say, what, why was the Lunar Empire seen as a good thing? It's because, well, let's compare and contrast to what was there before. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you'll say, yeah, that was a good thing. So it hasn't always been sunny. I mean, the, the empire expanded rapidly at first because everyone loved it. And then there was, you know, ups like the Dara Harpen Rebellion, which was put down more than 300 years ago. And since then, no Dara Harpens have ever thought, let's rebel against the <laughs> Red Goddess, because that's a mad idea. Yeah. Um, and they expanded into the south and peaceably annexed a whole bunch of barbarian kingdoms after killing everyone who disagreed with them. Um, <laughs> so that's where the kingdoms come from. And they um, expanded into the west, into the west reaches of the empire, the former Carmanian heartlands, which are now very, very lunarized. They're still called citizen foreigners, and they have funny accents in their own way of doing stuff. But they're deeply lunar now, and they came to the aid of the empire uh, during its darkest hour. And its darkest hour was in the third and fourth wanes of history. So a couple of hundred years ago, when the heartlands of the empire were overrun by a savage solar horse nomad called Sheng Solaris and his monstrous band. Basically, imagine superpowered Genghis Khan. Um, and they smashed up the Lunar Empire, but they couldn't defeat it. And in the end, Sheng Solaris himself was caught, thrown into a lunar hell where he's still being tortured to this day. And if you are a very lucky enemy of the Lunar Empire, we will show you what we're doing to him. And then you'll say, hail Moonsun, like they all do, <laughs> um, because we are doing very bad things to him, which mm -hmm. he was a very bad man. 
since that low point, the empire has come back and pioneered by Honil the Artess, a demigoddess, a manifestation of the red goddess who lived in the fifth wane. So maybe 150 years ago. I'm Can you explain the wane specifically? Because I don't think it's mentioned in the rule book. Oh, no, no, nobody uses wanes. It's mad. Okay. <laughs> a wane is a period of 54 years. Okay. Um, why 54? Well, because the lunar goddess walked around on the face of Glorantha for 27 years, and 54 is 2 times 27. So from 1220 to 1247 is what we call the zero wane, when the goddess was actually alive on the face of Glorantha. She then ascends into the middle air, a lovely, lovely estate, wasn't being used for anything proper up until then, and she rotates. And the first wane is a 54-year period that begins in 1247 and ends 54 years later. The second wane is the next 54 years. So two wanes is just over a century. There have been seven wanes plus the half wane, the zero wane of imperial history. We are now at the start of the eighth wane. Lunar chronomancers, students of history, people who study patterns, um, say that each wane has its own distinct character, and that usually there's a little bit of a dip in imperial fortunes in the middle, and a uptick at the end. Of course, the eighth wane is likely to be very difficult, but different to that, because it's very hard to see how the empire's fortunes will dip. We are, after all, um, almost universally dominant on the world stage, and apart from a few... <laughs> local differences, which I'm sure we'll itemize later, um, <laughs> I think the future's looking rosy for the Empire. Right. But anyway, sorry, uh, let's go back to, uh, which was it, like third or fourth Wayne with Hon Hill? Fifth Wayne, Hon Hill's Wayne, the reconstruction. So, okay, when your um, Empire is overrun by horse nomads, they tend to trash everything, and they did. And the result was a lot of rubble, a lot of ruined agriculture in Peloria, a lot of sad people who are unhappy because they didn't have anything to live for because their rulers had been killed, their queens and kings and governors had been killed. And luckily, here comes the benevolent lunar empire and rebuilds everything. So this is really the moment at which a, a Peloria starts to look distinctly lunar rather than anything else, because a lot of old stuff just got flattened. And then the lunars turn up and they say, why don't we build you a beautiful lunar temple and we can build you a city around your temple and we'll give you, you know, the lunar priestesses teaching you the lunar way to rebuild from disaster. The lunars are very good at that. The lunar way has a lot of consolations for the dispossessed and the downtrodden. It's a quite an irony, given that it's the dominant religion of a conquering empire. Empire. But it's a really interesting irony and one that I myself plan to have fun with in future when I look at the um, downtrodden lunars of post-imperial prax. Mm, okay. That's a, a thought for another day, maybe. Let's yeah. stick a pin in that yeah. one. So, um, yeah, the, the Lunar Empire rebuilds and becomes stronger than ever in the fifth way, in the sixth way, and it turns internal inside on itself. They uh, eliminate, they essentially exterminate the nomad threat at the end of the fifth way in, in a uh, cataclysmic battle called the Knights of Horror, in which um, lots and lots and lots of Penton nomads and some brave Lunars died. Um, so after that, the Empire turns inward. They haven't got a Penton threat on the eastern frontier. They haven't got a opportunity to expand to the west into the Aeolian colonies, which are a lunar area of Fronella, the western part of uh, the northwestern part of the continent of Genetella, uh, because of something called the Syndic's Ban, which is eventually, of course, overcome by superior lunar sorcery. Um, but uh, for the meantime, their efforts are channeled south towards the Poxy Barbarian kingdoms, 
uh, in the south. So uh, clearly we um, evict Palashi Longax from his um, usurped throne in Tarsh. Uh, Honiel's descendants become the kings of Luna Tarsh again, and then they are senselessly provoked in border skirmishes by the princes of a small place called Sartar. These are jumped up um, bandit tribes who have gained control of an important major continental trade route, really. It would be irresponsible to leave them in charge of that, especially as, you know, they were invading Lunatash. If you look on a map and see where Grizzly Peak was, you'll realize these aren't passive victims. These are an aggressive threat to the empire's <laughs> peace and safety. So in a police action, the uh, Red Emperor designated um, Sartar as a, a appropriate place for us to come along take over and then continue the expansion of the Lunar Way into places that hadn't previously benefited from it. So they uh, took over Sartar in 1602. They uh, almost took over the Holy Country in 1607 and again in 1617. Um, they took over all of uh, Prax, all, all the worthwhile bits of Prax in 1610 after a slight false start apparently in 1608 when actually a lot of mythic legwork was done. Um, and um, that's before your RuneQuest Glorantha campaigns kick off. Now, when you play through the family history, you watch all this recent history getting tragically undone. You see the Lunas getting kicked out of Parvis and Prax by Argrath White Bull and Harex Wolf Pirates. You see the Lunas getting kicked out of um, Ezrolia by these um, motley barbarian crowds and more wolf pirates and probably Argraf again and mm -hmm. somebody called Briar who doesn't turn up afterwards in the histories. And sadly, this is the worst bit of it all. You get to see that architectural gem, the, the glory of the provinces, the New Moon Temple um, south of Boltholm, um, getting uh, despoiled by foolish barbarians and then eaten by a dragon, which was a, a tragedy. I mean, there's no other way of looking at it. That's the, the decapitation of the flower of lunar provincial civilization. E everyone who was anyone was there, and they all got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and b by the way, this uh, new moon temple uh, was supposed to expand the glow line, you know, in in Saltor, mm. as I understand it. Uh, do yeah. would will, would non-lunar people know about the glow line, or can you explain a bit what the glow line is? I'm willing to bet that the Lunas were happily telling you that they were going to extend the glow line over Sartar, probably starting in 1603. Okay. Um, it's always been an obvious thing to do. We we build temples of the reaching moon. They extend the benefits of imperial stability and magic uh, across our uh, liberated domains. Um, so when um, the a great visionary architect, Tatius the Bright, uh, became appointed Governor General of Dragon Pass in, um, I think it was around 1620 or thereabouts, shortly after the pacification of the last vestiges of the Orlanth cult at Whitewall. Uh, he turned his hand and his, his penetrating mind to the, the problems of securing forever imperial dominion over the, the fractious um, Quivini Peaks region. And he decided the best thing to do would be to build a larger and better Temple of the Reaching Moon than ever before there, so that the, the benevolent rosy glow of the Lunar Empire would pervade this this this. <laughs> fractious region. Uh, Sartar was never a province. Once in a while you hear um, 
foolish people like Chaosium's creative director loosely talking about Sartar as a province. It was never a province. We have any number of lists of lunar provincial kingdoms made in the 1610s and 1620s. Sartar is never on any of them. It was going to be carved up. They were going to give bits of it to the Grayslands, bits of it to um, Hjortland, bits of it to the Tarshites, which of course were the Tarshite bits of Sartar that were only ever temporarily annexed after the Battle of Grizzly Peak. Um, and the rest of it, I mean, there might have been a rump with any land protector or something like that. I'm not sure. But yeah, <laughs> no, the idea of the satire is a meaningful political entity. Basically, we, 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 we more or less did away with that when we appointed that silly puppet to run the place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a, a bit of a joke, really. So yes, yes, <laughs> ben- benefits of the lunar way, bringing you in the uh, Temple of the Reaching Moons, to build stabilization of the lunar influence throughout Sartar, along with, of course, peace, uh, potato bread, tasty red berries, uh, education, and the benefits of the lunar way. And Sartarites would, of course, be welcome to enlist in Sartarite regiments of the Lunar Provincial Army and go and fight our enemies somewhere else. And they, they're, they're really good at fighting Sartarites. I've got to give them that. Very plucky. They don't know when they're defeated. Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll talk a bit about actually like what the lunar way is and what what you know how you you basically pacify. But just before that, uh, now that we're in twenty uh, sixteen twenty five, the uh, timeline of Rinquez Glorenta, um, what is the empire interested in and concerned with? Right. I'm glad you asked me that because the answer is the empire is primarily concerned with parties. Uh, the emperor is Moonsun Argentius. Moonsun Argentius is there to spread joy and love to his people. He's doing this with grandiose, grand-scale public entertainments. If you think about the way that um, the emperor Nero would have behaved, or Commodus, if you remember him from Gladiator, or the whole Roman bread and circuses thing. Oh no, I keep mentioning Romans, how annoying is that? Um, <laughs> anyway, that whole thing of entertaining the populace, keeping them amused, now, of course, Argentius has some things going for him that Nero didn't. I, in my imagination, he is, or at least was, supremely musically talented. He actually was a competent educa- uh, entertainer of the, the way that uh, Nero could only dream of being and did dream of being and thought he was. Um, but no, that, that's the, the main preoccupation of the man who runs the Lunar Empire at the moment is about showing his people a good time with banquets and spectacles and stage shows and orgies and you name it. That's what he's there to do. And it's vastly expensive. And that's the main drain on the empire's finances. Now, some of the people who run the Lunar Empire are interested in other things. For example, um, Jariel the Razoress was recently tasked with debating with the keepers of the White Moon Movement, a radical philosophical split, splinter movement in the Imperial Heartlands that um, basically takes the Lunar Way seriously and says, well, hang on a second, aren't we meant to have a single empire that um, lays down the sword and um, spreads peace across the world? And not, they're not they're basically the, uh, the lunar pacifist hippies. Yes, 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 yes. As you know, hippies are essentially evil. The White Moon movement is definitely a hippie movement. Um, they, they, they are, unfortunately, uh, they're part of the Lunar Way. The religion does say, well, at the end of it, will be a white moon and it'll be a peaceful moon and it will rule over everything the way the red moon does today. And if you're a good lunar, you believe that. Uh, if you're a good lunar with a good job, you believe that, but not yet. It's like, you know... Uh, this is this is a little bit on the sort of apocalyptic revelation side of things. You don't expect to be living through the rapture yourself, but some people do. The White Moon Movement got a big boost just after Tatius's last masterstroke was played, when 
the Empire killed all Anth. It was like, well, that's it. We've done it now. We've won. Game over. Time to go full White Moon. A lot of White Moon is sprung up. Um, the Empire tried dealing with them reasonably. We sent Jariel to talk to them. She was very persuasive. They were also very persuasive. And then um, they sort of lost their patience and sent in the boot boys. And there was a, a, bit, of, a bit of a Barney and, you know, occasional massacres here and there and sieges of Yathaka and this, that and the other. But that's all right, because we, I think we can put that behind us now from the perspective of 1625 or so and say it was a, a, a heretical movement, an uprising. It's, I'm sure there's very few ringleaders left. And uh, I think it's best to put that behind us and concentrate on the healing process now. Yeah, in, in my game, I'm, I'm using uh, the White Moon movement to basically have like a few defectors from the Lunar Empire. and, and, and that, Which is what they're for. Yeah, anti-imperialists lunar, basically. Yes, uh, that's a, a very, very good thing. Because, of course, the Lunar Empire is not monolithic. Yeah. Uh, the Lunar Empire is not run by sort of mind-reading hive minds or anything. <laughs> the Lunar Empire is made up yeah. of people. And the people who are most important in the Lunar Empire are what we call illuminates. And illuminates, of course, are cleaved to their own personal moral truths rather than what they were taught. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. And yeah. when we'll, you consider we'll get, everyone yeah. important in the Lunar Empire is illuminated, you begin to realize how you can have such fun. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to illumination. Um, one last bit about like current events. Um, I have to interrupt you yeah. because the other current event you need to realize is that a vast Penton horde has recently emerged in the east, uh, conquering almost the walls of Terang. This is very, very recent. Now, the Pentons are an existential threat to the Lunar Empire. They've proved it before. They looked like they were going to prove it again. They overran the um, Araya Sultanate. They made it into the first blessed Sultanate, so-called, because it was the first lands that the Red Goddess brought into the new Lunar Way. Uh, they made it to the very walls of the holy city of Tarang before they were defeated, marvelously defeated, by Jariel the Razoress riding upon the goddess's own liberation vehicle, the, the sacred, the holy crimson bat. Basically, the uh, the fact that there was a dragon rise that ate like 10,000 people in Sartar is actually just a big annoyance compared to the return of Shang Celeris's people who almost killed the Empire a couple centuries um, ago. It's a small annoyance. <laughs> Genuinely. From the Empire's perspective, the three most important things you have to do are yeah. keep Moon Sun happy, which means giving him money and throwing parties, mm -hmm. and not be suspected of being a white moony, because that's now very dangerous, and uh, fighting off the Pentons, because the Pentons were there. They were there very recently. They are an existential threat to the Empire. The Eastern Empire has recently, like last year, been overrun by nomads, and they'll probably come back. We thought for a while, after the Battle of the Knights of Horror, uh, more than a century ago, we thought for a while that the Penton nomads were extinct. We thought we, we'd wipe them out. We had, we'd only wiped out the dangerous ones. But they've been festering on the steppe, and they've been coming back. They've been worshipping strange new gods and doing things in ways that they haven't done them before. And they've come back worshipping storm gods and things, which we've never seen people coming from Pent worshipping these gods like Orlanth and Humark before. It's all a bit worrying, frankly, if you ask me. But luckily, I'm very happy to tell you that uh, Jariel the Razoress defeated Drans Galoy, the Penton leader, a sort of very nasty nomad, um, while riding, as I said, on the Crimson Bat and probably wielding a huge scythe the way one does while riding on the Crimson Bat. 
Uh, and so he definitely won't be back to bother us again. So thank goodness the Penton threat is at an end, but we're going to need to muster a lot of troops and send them east to pacify and resettle and sort out the issues that are doubtless present after that incursion. And that, let me remind you, that's a large part of the lunar heartland being overrun. Now, compared to that, saying some provincial troops and a few of their advisors uh, got eaten in way, way down south beyond the furthest of the lunar provinces. It's like, like I care. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is this is not interesting. This is not news. <laughs> um, can you speak a bit about the organization of the of the empire between the heartlands and the the satrapies and the provinces and all that? I will do. I will do. And I'm particularly glad you used the wrong word there because I'm out of correct. The Lunar Empire, um, <laughs> essentially the, the heart of the Lunar Empire is the, the Lunar Heartlands, which is made up of a bunch of sultanates. Um, the Carmanians would have called these satrapies, of course, but the goddess herself in life called them sultanates, as did Greg Stafford when he wrote about them until I casually used the word satrapies in front of him in the mid-90s, at which point he thought, maybe I should have called them that all along. But of course, he's wrong, because in your mind's eye, you have no idea what a satrap is. But if I tell you a sultan, you immediately go, I know what a sultan's like. Well, the people who rule the Lunar Empire's heartlands are like sultans. Okay, got that? Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. So some people call them satraps, some people call them sultans. Sometimes you call them sultans to annoy them, sometimes you call them sultans because it's a religious word and it makes them sound holy. Sometimes you call them satraps because you're a Carmanian, it's the official word because the Lunar Empire was, after all, reconstructed in the fifth way under Carmanian leadership. And sometimes you call them satraps because satraps ruled the old Carmanian Empire and were bad. And everyone thinks, well, if he's extorting taxes out of me, he's a baddie, he's a satrap, I hate satraps. But you might equally say, oh no, he's extorting satraps taxes out of me like a sultan would, like an evil Penton sultan would, the kind of people that the red goddess herself talked about. So the word um, in, in itself, it's a neutral word. Uh, you can add modifiers the way we do when speaking in New Pelorian, so that, for example, if you thought somebody um, was a satrap but you liked them, you might call them the good satrap. And similarly, if you thought somebody was a sultan but you wanted to make it clear that you disapproved of them, you might call them the wicked Sultan. Um, this is the way the New Pelorian is a very sophisticated language, as you can tell. I'm not sure that this kind of um, detail is possible in barbarian kingdoms, but um, <laughs> it's the way it's the way we roll up north. So anyway, the heartlands of the Lunar Empire are divided up into sultanates. Each sultanate is ruled by a family of nobles. These families are quite closely related because all of them can claim descent from a previous red emperor. And remember, that's always the same person. So the family trees tend to look quite inbred and incestuous uh, because everyone's marrying people who you might thought, have thought were their um, descendants or their again, children. Again, very British. Um, and there are knock-on effects from this. So I think at the moment, one of the sultans, possibly the sultan of Darjeen, is a pair of conjoint twins, which are very Carmanian. Mm. Uh, some people would say chaotic, but those are those are bad people. Don't listen to them. They they just you know it's a, they're, they're being mean. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Anyway, he's a very good sultan. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in charge of the job. <laughs> and um, sultans rule their own sultanates and pay uh, large amounts of taxes to Moonsun to keep the show going. And when we say keep the show going, we are largely referring to the shows rather than say things like armies <laughs> because uh, Moonsun Argentius has his own personal. Priorities. It would be tragic if he were to die and be replaced by a uh, Moonsan who thought the wars in the South were more serious and actually started using the empire to kick shit down South. Let's hope that doesn't happen next year. 
Um, so moving on, moving on. Outside of the Sultanates, you get to the provinces. Now, the provinces are barbarian kingdoms uh, whose rulers have converted to the Lunar Way centuries ago, like Tarsh in 1490. It's now 1620-something, isn't it? Um, and before Tarsh, places like Biki and Hole and Vanch that were brought into the Lunar Fold, uh, even earlier in, I think, the second wane, the Conquering Daughters wane, when Huarin Dalthipa, um, a daughter of the Red Emperor, uh, conquered a whole bunch of barbarians because they done did her husband down. Uh, it was it was glorious. It was tragic. There's lots of, lots of epics and really great architecture about it. And you can join the cult of Huarin Dalthipa nowadays if you're in the provinces. It's a good place to be. So the provinces were organized um, after the Fifth Wayne, basically uh, around the Tarshites, because Tarsh is a big, rich province, and the king of Tarsh was a friend of Moonsun and was also the first governor of the provinces when they were reconstituted as such. So in Mirin's Cross, the provincial capital, basically things are run the way the empire wants them run. In the provincial capitals around that, that are actually barbarian king's provincial capitals, you've got people aping the lunar way and people trying to be civilized and getting the benefits of lunar advisors, lunar sorcery, lunar magicians and priests, and the lunar army helping back up their rightful rule against rebels and dissidents. Now, remember, the natural state of existence of um, the Orlanth cult, and I, I'm sorry to bring up this distasteful matter, is, is pointless rebellion. Um, it's, it's what they do. We wish they wouldn't. We try to talk them out of it, but they insist. And they've got these weird notions um, that just seem to be incompatible with peaceful civilized living so for example um the orlanthi think that um you know if you ever make a mistake you 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 must be punished for it you can't ever you know change your mind you, there's there's no 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 second chances for anyone goodness knows if you were to do something like i don't know kill the sun god that that's it you're clearly bad and there's no hope for you and there's no redemption path oh no actually that's not what they believe at all is it um they believe that you know if you've ever had anything to do with uh, bringing chaos into the world and formalizing it as part of the way the world runs forever afterwards like for example making entropy and existence synthesize into time and creating the world inside time in which everything is governed by the offspring of Arachne Solara and the devil. They would say, oh no, that's that's terrible, that's bad, that's chaotic, you can't have that. And they're very, very keen on the idea that the gods should stay outside of time and never change. And that's why the leaders of the Orlanth cult will all tell you that the red goddess must be fought against by all Orlanth. He's always thought that forever. You know, it's like this isn't a new idea that somehow has been introduced during time because that would be monstrously hypocritical, wouldn't it? I mean, if you're saying that the Orlanth cult at some point can come up with a policy on the red goddess that didn't exist before, but it exists now, that's <laughs> just crazy talk, isn't it? So I think we can all see where we're coming from here. And the point is, if the, if the cult's extreme leaders are going to go around causing trouble and leading rebellions and trying to get people to die pointlessly fighting the empire, well, up to a point, we can entertain that. We, you know, we can tolerant, reasonable religion, um, empire here. We have a, a religion of, of, of peace and prosperity that we're trying to spread to these people. But if they insist on fighting, we will just show them that we can fight better than they can. And this is this is borne out by uh, recent history in Sartar, to take one example that spreads readily to mind, the Storm Bull cult. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. It's a sort of um, band of 
vagabonds, a bit like a biker gang, <laughs> and they go around causing trouble and saying that anyone they wanted to beat up was a bad one. And it's obviously, you know, something going on there. I'm not quite sure what. But even they were tolerated by the empire for a dozen years after the uh, occupation of Sata, until the cult's leaders decided to declare some kind of holy war against the lunar empire, at which point our patience ran out. And that's when the Spawnball cult, after a dozen years of peaceful coexistence with the occupying forces, was reluctantly um, declared anathema. And it's like, <laughs> well, what are we supposed to do? These people are demonstrating that they can't live with us. Now, the example, Actually, I... go, going back to or length cult what what would be the difference for example between a player like an adventurer or lengthy from sartar versus an orlanthi from lunar torch well if you have an orlanthi from sartar he's probably spent most of his adult life um in furtive or armed rebellion against the mm -hmm. lunar empire if you're playing an orlanthi orlanthi from lunar torch you've got two choices one is that you don't have a um a leader who is trying to provoke you into throwing everything away in a futile rebellion against the dominant imperial power. At that point, you can live a per perfectly normal life. You, you can worship Bantar, your plow god. You can uh, marry somebody who worships Arnalda, the earth goddess. Uh, the Lunars don't insist that you convert to the Lunar way. I mean, the, the opportunity is there if you want to join the Seven Mothers cult, but they, they aren't trying to say, no, other, other religions are false. The empire is full of all the gods of all. I mean, you see the picture of the God's Wall, all of the deities on the God's Wall are still worshipped inside the Lunar Empire. We, we're absolutely fine with that. That's no trouble at all. What they have to realise is that the Red Goddess is in a very special place. Uh, her son is the high priest of the Yelm cult. The Red Emperor is the Yelm Imperator ruler of the, all the traditional solar cults in Peloria. There and that comes a, from back when the Lunar Empire invaded and took over the Dara Hathans, who were the main sun god worshippers no. oh no um, that, 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 that's a, unfortunately no I, th I think you must have been misled by uh rebel propaganda okay uh, what actually happened is that the dara harpen emperor allied himself with the lunar way yom gartha um brought out the Colos uh, colossus of ribanth to submit to the Red Goddess when she marched to the Dara Harpen Tripolis. The Dara Harpens joined with the Lunars in overthrowing the Carmanian yoke. And when Yelm Gartha, um, praise be upon him, um, finally ascended into the heavens, as all emperors eventually do, up to a point, um, he anointed his heir and successor, Moonsun, um, who then, for reasons that elude me, was called Takanegi, as his heir. So um, it's normal. I mean, so so they allied with the Lunars because they had the threat of the Carmanians. No, no, because the Lunars were right, and they could see that the Lunars were right. And that too, of course, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, uh, yeah. Well, they proved that the Lunars were right in the next way when they rose and bowed. Um, Jörg is re re referring to an abortive uh, rebellion in the first wane of lunar history, when under the leader leadership of an all-anthy barbarian called Janisor Moonchaser, um, a motley crew of uh, what we would nowadays call provincials marched on Glamour, the lunar capital. They were assisted by some uh, reprobates and ne'er-do-wells from old Dara Harper, and uh, they got their asses kicked. They marched all the way to the uh, very threshold of the moon, when fortunately the great sable conversion happened. The sable riders of the Hungry Plateau realized 
what side their bread was buttered and joined the Lunar Empire and had been among its most loyal supporters ever since. Janisaur himself was um, handed over to Jajagapa, the uh, dog-headed god of the dead. And uh, let's not talk about what happened to him afterwards. <laughs> it's not pleasant. If you're ever thinking of rebelling against the Lunar Empire, we can take you on a scenic tour to see what happens to the people <laughs> who once thought rebelling against the Empire yes. was a good idea. And since then, of course, uh, Dara Harper's basically been, been pretty happy being under lunar rule because their rightful emperor, designated as such by the last um, popular Dara Harpen emperor, is Moonsun. He's the son of the goddess. He's a uh, you know, closely related to a celestial body. The Daraharpens like that kind of stuff. He runs the Yelm cult exactly the way it ought to be run. But he, he's got some things he does differently as well, but they're kind of new and funky differently. So there's a little bit of muttering from the sort of um, tedious people who would definitely have always been running the show under the old regime, but that's centuries ago. Yeah. And the worst of those people, of course, turned quizzling, turned traitor, when the lunar heartlands were overrun by sun-worshipping Penton nomads, and they're not with us anymore. So, yes, the idea that there's some kind of solars versus lunars civil war to come in the lunar heartlands is, I mean, obviously, Ocarantha will vary, but it's going to have to vary a hell of a lot to make that make sense. Besides, the, the Dara happens. They like their big cities, very urbanized, with lots of arts and culture. So they are probably more, they've got more affinity towards the lunars and their similar big cities full of arts and cultures than the Penton nomads who just worship the sun, but otherwise shit out on the fields and, and ride horses all day. So... In the interest of fairness, I should mention that at the dawn of time, the Penton nomads, as you would call them, uh, ruled the Daraharpa Empire. They were expelled from Daraharpa about two centuries after the first sunrise, following the Battle of Argentium Isle, if I recall it rightly, when the first World Council of Friends did a team up and beat them out. And that was the first time humans had moved in to settle Pent. So, um, yeah, the, the rulers of Dara Harper before and after the dawn of time were the ancestors of the Penton Horse Nomads. Um, so we mustn't present them as an entirely negative thing. Uh, although most lunars nowadays would, as I said, I'm going to try to be reasonable here. <laughs> um, okay, so let's uh, move away from all those nastiness and talk about uh, the lunar way, free t-shirts, corn on the knob and all the goodness. Um, and in particular, the seven mother skulls, which is a one of the playable cults. But I find that the the way that it's presented in the in the rule book, because there's like such little information about it and the lunars uh some people including me at first also we had a bit of trouble picturing how it fits with the other homelands and the other characters what there's the whole aspect of the proselytizing aspect of the seven mothers so talk us about the seven mothers and the lunar way and the proselytizing Delighted to do that. Um, and you're right, the Seven Mothers cult, as presented in the RuneQuest Glorantha core rulebook, is hard to get your head around because that's a very abbreviated presentation of a complex, civilized religion. Uh, I would recommend anyone who's playing uh, RuneQuest role-playing Glorantha to get a, their hands on a copy of Cults of Prax, which has the longer write-up of the Seven Mothers, where you can see how the different aspects of it hang together. Now, the seven gut mothers are, of course, the seven mortals, the seven humans who brought back the moon goddess into the world in 1220 solar time. They may not have known exactly what they were doing, 
but they did it. Um, they're all called mothers, although three of them are men, at least three of them are men. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them we will not speak of. That's called She Who Waits. Um, but the mothers who we can name are uh, Jackalil the Witch, a darkness-worshipping hag, Queen Dizola, a uh, earth and fertility and poetry patroness, Tilo Norai, um, young life, the cupbearer for the goddess, who may have been the mortal host body for the reincarnated lunar goddess, although you will very rarely get lunars talking about this in detail. Mm -hmm. um, Yanifal Tarnils, um, a military leader. Iripi Ontor, a visionary scientist. And Dan Five Haron, a bloodthirsty bandit. And all seven of these individuals um, now have their own cults because they are now worshipped as gods, because they are gods, because the Red Goddess taught them how they could follow her and through mastering the secrets of the Lunar Way could ascend to eternal life upon the Red Moon and be worshipped as deities. So they've got seven cults. And starting with the simplest ones to understand, the Tilo Norai cult is essentially a charitable outreach arm. It offers people potato bread and a place to sleep for the night if you're homeless and red berries if you're hungry. Um, they're really nice people. They run orphanages. I know that the Lunar Empire's foreign policy creates a lot of orphans, but we also <laughs> create orphanages. So I think on balance, you'd have to say that was a good thing. And that the orphans can all learn um, useful things like how to fit into a civilized society and how to you know earn their way how to get useful trades um and um of course can they can learn proper religion from the the kind priestesses at the orphanages so i think that's uh, we can all see that's very beneficial mm -hmm. um and i mentioned uh Iripion tor he's called the brown man he was a sage a celestialager he saw things in the heavens that people hadn't seen before a lot of aspects of what the lunars are getting up to in the sky you don't think we're only conquering the earth did you <laughs> a big mistake a lot of stuff the lunar's getting up to in the sky was seen or foreseen by iripi on tour and he's essentially now the new and improved version of the lankor my cult in um the lunar empire so uh imagine lankor my without the pointless bickering and with a sensible working library indexing system and a uh <laughs> modern refreshed intellectual pedigree and some actual new ideas and you're starting and no stupid beards and you don't need the stupid beards that's absolutely right um or, or you can wear them on formal occasions i mean you know we're not we're, we're not savages we're willing to allow traditional <laughs> academic dress where it's appropriate but no 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 lunar sages get to wear false mustaches it's much more civilized um and the european tour cult offer um opens schools they will teach things they teach the the sophisticated new pelorian language in both its written and its spoken forms so that we we have scribes who can write useful things like party invitations and tax demands and well actually that's the same thing sometimes but there you go so the european talk cult and also they, they 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 know secrets of the heavens and secrets of madness and mind blasting some people say that european himself mind blasted himself in order to gain the insights into what became 
balloon away. I couldn't possibly comment on that. It's also sometimes been rumoured that one of the initiation rituals of the Seven Mothers cult is having a madness spell cast, cast on you. But again, I could neither <laughs> confirm nor deny. But that's 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 one thing also to mention is that you know you're talking about the cult of European Tor and the cult of of whatever. But in most cases, like in the vast majority of cases, people initiate into the Seven Mothers cult as a whole. Like it's a it's as a, a collective structure, and these are the parts of it. And there are separate cults of each of them. But in the provinces, you're likely to find a temple of the Seven Mothers in which there will be people specializing in each of these roles. In a very mm -hmm. small temple, it might be one priest or priestess. The uh, gender-neutral term is priestess, of course, in the Lunar Empire. <laughs> there might be one priestess who's doing all of these things. But that's a bit much to ask of some people. So ideally, I suppose you would have six or seven chief priestesses or acolytes, uh, each of them leading up one side of these. So we've we've covered the uh, the charitable arm with the, uh, the orphanages and the poverty relief programs and the like. The Empire also creates a lot of poverty, I think I should fairly mention. So again, very nice of us to, to offer this by way of giving something back to the people we've taken everything from. Yeah, you, you, you lose your home because you pay too many taxes, but the taxes also finance for uh, uh, homeless shelters. So it's all good. I do believe you've got it. Genius. <laughs> okay. So yes, as you can see, all very fair, very modern, very civilized, very progressive. It's the lunar way. Yeah. Um, I talked about uh, Tilo Norai and Iripi on tour. I was about to talk about Yanafal Tarnils, which is Humarkt, if Humarkt was the war god of a organized military power. So instead of the weird stuff you read about in cults of Prax, where the temples are notionally organized into centuries under commanders, it's like, no, Iripiontor provides the officer corps of the lunar army. Uh, it is a lunar war god. He upholds the lunar way of war, which is very much like the Humakti way of war, because Yanafal Tarnils himself was a Humakti and mm -hmm. stole all Humark's best secrets and then made them better through the lunar way. <laughs> um, so that's Yanafal Tarnils, the good god of lunar honorable warriors and commanders. Um, we've got Queen Dizola, who is mostly of interest to um, earth types and gardeners and people who run big estates and queens and nobles and poets. She likes poetry and is a goddess of civilized stuff. So you don't see many Dizola priests out in the provinces because there's a sad lack of civilized st stuff. But there will still nevertheless be a Dizola representative at any large temple of the Seven Mothers. Mm -hmm. Um we mentioned Jackalil the witch, whose priestesses are witches and deal with mad people a lot. They um, psychoanalyze them and they make them mad and then they get them to do mad things. And that makes them better or more productive members of society. Um, but basically, yes, it's a, it's a lunar witch cult and they do sinister things and cackle a lot and don't think about it too much. Um, there's Dan Five Haron. Um, now, when he was first described, you thought this is like a thief cult for the Lunar Empire, because they teach thief skills. And indeed they do. All the thieves in the Lunar Empire are warmly encouraged to join the cult of Dan Five Haron, which will issue you with manacles <laughs> and a cell where you can go and meditate on your imperfections. And when you've meditated on your imperfections for long enough, you're released back into society and you can try to blend in. Of course, you still owe the cult a favor. You're expected to inform on criminal activity when you see it. Uh, you'll have learned various prayers and meditative disciplines, and you may have interesting scars or tattoos marking your, your time spent inside. But yes, absolutely, just as in the real world, the penitentiaries of Dan Five Haron are facilities in which large numbers of thieves and other criminals are confined and can share their skills for mutual benefit. 
So do um, they do, do they get um, reintegrated into society after signing a little contract with some of the local lunar um, noble families to act as informants and um, acquirer of things? Well, of course. I mean, once they have successfully passed through the cult's rehabilitation program, they want to advise the authorities of things that the authorities need <laughs> yeah. to know, and they have a specialist skill set that helps them do that. It's it's wonderful, actually. As a reclamation project, the cult of Dan Five Her Own is is an example of all that is best about the Lunar Way. <laughs> and when you cool. compare that to the way some barbarians would just chop people's heads off or chop their hands off, and it's like, yeah. what, what what a terrible waste! The Lunar Way <laughs> offers so much more. And then the seventh subcult of the Seven Mothers is the subcult of She Who Waits. And there we are now. I've described all of them in great detail. Cool. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, we, we, you said you were not going to talk about her. That's good. Um, so um, is there a bit of like, you know, some people mentioned, well, you mentioned Romans a lot. And, um, you know, the Romans basically picked all the Greek gods and gave them new names. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between the Lightbringers and the Seven Mothers. Is there a bit of like Roman versus Greek thing going on there? Oh, you're, you're, you're a very smart man, Ludo. I couldn't I'm not smart. I got other people to tell me. Obviously, the way that you have heard the story of the Seven Mothers, there are clear parallels with the Lightbringers. We wrote it that way. We would very much like you to come to the realization. We won't drum it home in you or anything. But once you realize, oh, yeah, this is just like the Lightbringers. Wow, that's cool. I like these people. They're kind of redeeming the world by bringing back a celestial body to hang, returning between life and death and creating a new <laughs> world order. And, he, you know, anyone, even the worst of us, can be redeemed by their participation in this this epic journey, this, this mythological quest. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That is exactly how it was meant to work. The um, Seven Mothers movement, as we know it today, was really kicked off in the fifth way to expand into the former provinces and to lunarize them properly. So if you listen to what me talking about the seven mothers and you think, oh, that's a bit like the Lightbringers, excellent. Job done. <laughs> and so how how do they bring the lunar away? Like what kind of proselytizing and outreach programs and stuff do they do they do? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. As we've said, after we have um, decapitated your former ruling structures, uh, <laughs> overturned your class system, uh, occupied your fortresses with our crack professional elite forces and uh, made a few demonstrative examples of any rebellious priests, mm -hmm. we will pacify you properly and we'll <laughs> give you the opportunity to learn um, New Perlorian in schools that are free, that you can just attend and learn if you want to learn. And we are taking down the names of people who do turn up and we are also elsewhere taking down the names of people who don't turn up and they may get visits. Um, we will be giving people the opportunity to study the Lunar Way. We'll be giving people opportunities to play their part in the furtherance of the Empire, whether this is simply by uh, understanding that the seven mothers themselves are you know, representatives of the divine, that you can worship them, you gain usable powers from them, um, that in, in many ways they are more interesting and more close to humans than the abstract gods, the old gods that people used to worship in the four, before times who look a bit like sort of the Willendorf Venus and things. And there's not a lot there you can you can hang yourself on. Whereas the seven mothers are human. They're much more like us. You can understand them. They're historical personalities. They lived four centuries ago. Mm -hmm. They're a, a, a vibrant. They're aligned to um, the mortal ways and mortal fra frailties. They understand what it is to exist within a complex and sophisticated civilization in a way that, frankly, all ants never will. Um, so they, they've got a lot to offer you if you actually want to get ahead in the, the new world order. Let's call it that. 
Um, you can join the um, Temple's Militia. That's the um, militant arm of the Seven Mother Tem- Mother's Temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you, know, you might as well just sign up for the, a stint in the Provincial Army or join one of our allied regiments. So there's lots of stuff you can do there. But if you just want to stay home and be peaceful and prosper and pay your taxes on time, um, you can do that. And that's much easier under stable, benevolent government like the Lunar Empire than it is when um, the king down the road argues with your brother who's the king or the chief or whatever you barbarians have, I forget, and they're constantly <laughs> bickering and fighting over cows and stuff. I mean, we've basically managed to stamp a lot of that nonsense out. It's yeah, it's right. uncivilized. Well, yeah, up to, uh, up to making it a nice sort of competition, didn't you? The dark competitions. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the dark competitions because that allows me to say, um, hand on heart, there is no civil war in Lunatash. <laughs> the dart competitions are a ongoing survival of the fittest program instituted by the Red Emperors uh, in which lunar noble houses are encouraged to compete against each other uh, through subtle and underhanded means up to and including the use of assassination, sinister sorceries, cunning devices, and anything else that springs to mind, so that lunar um, noble families are very, very paranoid and very good at defending themselves and very good at finding sneaky new ways of knocking off their opponents. The rules of a properly run dart competition are that it must not spook the mundanes and it must not interfere with taxes. So no civilian casualties, no overt military nonsense and keep the taxes flowing towards glamour where they belong uh, and if you can do all of that and survive and succeed then that's awesome and that's what moon sun wants now fortunately as i've said the probably the exemplar of the lunar provincial kingdoms is tash and the king of tash um tash king Ferandros, is very lunar he went to school in glamour don't you know mm-hmm. you can tell that from his accent um <laughs> and um he has introduced the sophisticated modern school of dart warfare into tired old barbarian um politics and mm-hmm. um this is bad news for his rivals in the orindori clan but maybe they should stop talking so much shit um, and that they, as they get wiped off his little board of, um, you know, prominent leaders of the Orindori clan, they do indeed stop talking. So it seems to be working, but it's not a civil war. It's nothing like a civil war. It's just that people who happen to be on the wrong side of the extremely pro-lunar, extremely pro-imperial king of Tarsh, um, gradually find their families being um, dethroned, eviscerated, hung out to dry, uh, convicted on trumped-up charges, or just murdered. And that is the ideal lunar player character to bring into a traditional RuneQuest group. Um, There are others. Obviously, you can try to bring in, you you could make an an all-lunar party, which is kind of mad, and I'm not sure I'd do that. You could bring in somebody who's left behind by the Empire, who, who was a barbarian who'd supported the Empire while they were here. But the most obvious thing to do is to play as a lunar Tarshite who is on the wrong side of the non-existent, there is no civil war in lunar Tarsh. And like Vostor from the uh, Vasana's uh, pre-gens has decided, actually, you know what? There's no future for me standing around in Tarsh with a big kill me sign on my back. Um, Bad things going on. Uh, The government is behind it. The government is not going to stop this. Uh, The emperor is delighted to see a Tarsh king doing exactly what he thinks all provincial kings should be doing all the time to their enemies. Um, and you just hightail out of dodge and you end up somewhere else. And what could be a safer, more 
absent the uh, dead hand of the provincial government place than formerly occupied Sata, where you can guarantee that any pro-lunar sentiment has been thoroughly squelched. <laughs> it's good because I was actually going to ask, like, how do you integrate a seven mother uh, player character in a RuneQuest campaign? Um, yeah. Look at Vostal. Yeah. Uh, he's an ideal example. What you can't do, what Jeff sometimes forgets what he's talking about and goes <laughs> rambling on about, is you can't play a normal RuneQuest campaign in which somebody who is a pious lunar who works for the Empire and uh, believes in dominating Dragon Pass and Prax and making them subject to the uh, Emperor in Glamour, uh, that is very, very unlikely to work well integrated with a traditional room-questing party. But playing somebody who is an exile from the Empire yeah. or who is cut off from the Empire can work very well. Similarly, you can play as people who are, are victims of the Empire or who are trying to unpack things that um, evil forces in the Empire are doing. You'll, I refer back to what I said earlier on about Illuminates running the Empire. The people running the Empire are devious and conspiratorial. Some of them may be bad. That's good. The Lunar Way encourages them to explore their full potential. Yes. Um, there's an, a, one way to uh, play an empire-friendly guy in this setting, which is play a dart competitor, someone who is working for a lunar house and is doing groundwork in SATA. Yeah, sure. that could work. It, it could work, although it might derail a bit the campaign because that character would have some agenda. But yeah, that would work. Uh, you mentioned the, the White Moon. Um, it could be also a white, a, a white Moon uh, um, exile. And there there is a bunch of people who converted to or uh, initiated into the Seven Mothers cult in Sartar, like for the couple of generations that it was occupied. So you could also be somebody who grew up in a Seven Mothers family, and but they're Sartarites, and now I mean they're Seven Mother initiates. So they oh, it's even even longer than that. I mean, if you think about it, as soon as King Sartar founded his caravan kingdom, bringing trade from Peloria to the south and from the south to Peloria, there were yeah. people traveling through that kingdom who were lunars. And uh, it caught on. It, it was yeah. an interesting thing. And a few of them might have stopped and got married, yes. Yes. So there was a, uh, a sort of cafe culture of enlightened <laughs> lunars with um, yeah. moon runes before Saltar was occupied. Now, um, really not much of that left. But it does mean that you could have been a, uh, a Sartarite with a moon rune affinity uh, before the army ever turned up, just the same way as there are Lunars in Prax who were there before the Empire turned up and who are still there now after the Empire has, uh, alas, come to nothing. Very yeah. sad. And this brings us to some other interesting deities, like, for example, Eteris. Oh uh, Yes, yes, yes. Eteris is the lunar goddess of trade. Uh, she is also the daughter of Isseris, the uh, traditional god of trade. And obviously, in the fullness of time, she will inherit his role as the premier god of trade, because that's what happens in these commercial family-run operations. Um, now, Isseries is uh, good at creating markets, and Eteries is good at working the market. <laughs> so when um, I and my friends start talking like Eteries cultists, we tend to do it in a fever-pitched, visionary, Ponzi scheme-constructing, dot-com, tech-bro, high-frequency trader <laughs> kind of way. And all that is material falls away. You virtualize everything. You you bring time into things. So we're sending you future put options on pork bellies from um, Balazar. And it's like, you don't need to know what this is. I'm just talking 
I'm blathering out nonsense, but this is what Etteri's cultists can do, is that they are actually trying to create sophisticated financial instruments within an essentially bronze to Iron Age empire. And it's really funny when you do it right. So basically, yes, the Etteri's cult is clearly more profitable than the Etteri's cult. It's got a, a lock on the internal trade within the Lunar Empire. The two cults are very friendly. They are, in fact, family members. If you were to kill an Etteri's merchant, any Etteri's merchant would be very, very offended. Um, and this is probably and, how you can also bring another sort of lunarized character in the party because Etiris and Nisaris are almost interchangeable in terms of like how they love everything as long as there's money flowing. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Etiris is a, a fine lunar go goddess for talking to foreigners. It's it's what she does. And similarly, you know, an Irapiontor scholar is as interested in finding out stuff that's going on in weird foreign places as a Lankor Mai scholar would be. And the only thing you have to deal with is some weird, freakish people get upset about the lunars and chaos. Oh, my goodness, is that the time? <laughs> what, what a shame. We agreed we'd talk for um, an hour and a half. The hour and a half is now up. And unfortunately, <laughs> just as the C word comes onto the table, I'm going to have to cut it there. <laughs> So, well, I mean, you know, when it comes to chaos, you know, there's this whole comparison with like big um, imperialistic forces. I'm thinking about like the United States with their weapons of mass destruction and military industrial complex. Uh, this is what I picture basically as the equivalent in the lunar about like the crimson bat. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But I mean, the way I do it is slightly different to that. But um, please mm -hmm. bear with me for a moment. Okay. Um, you get people telling us that they hate the lunars because the lunars are all chaotic. And these are like people who tell you that they hate Americans because they're all run by little gray men from Roswell, Area 51. And it's like, no, th this is nonsense. <laughs> you, you can see this is nonsense. If you gave it a moment's rational thought, you would realize that this is nonsense. But you can't get through to those people. That's what we're up against. Blind, <laughs> fanatical nonsense. People so convinced of the rightness of their own weird religious beliefs that they yes. just won't look at the self-evident truth that the lunars yes. have tamed chaos and harnessed it to civilization and progress. The crimson bat, what's that? It's this gigantic monster that before the coming of the lunar way used to rove around the world, destroying everything. It would destroy cities, it would destroy countryside, it would destroy... Wait, wait, wait. Was, it, was it actually loose in Glorita? I thought it was like somewhere down in the underworld. Absolutely. Yeah. The goddess tamed it. And since it was tamed by the goddess, it's only ever eaten bad people. That's propaganda. <laughs> the lunar way harnesses chaos for the benefit of civilization. Yeah. We're proud of it. The red goddess, her runes include the chaos rune. The seven mothers' runes do not. If anyone tells you all oh, lunars are chaotic, they're lying. <laughs> yeah, I guess the lunar way uh, is like the opinion is that chaos doesn't kill people. People using chaos kill people or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, and we do it very well when the time is right. The lunar way has used chaos demonstratively and successfully in order to advance civilization. Um, we have uh, examples of people who use chaos badly. They're bad examples. Luckily, the Lunar Way says that uh, you can, if all goes wrong, you can serve as a bad example. And we would call on examples like Parg Illisi, who devastated the lands of the Twice Blessed, um, as an example of an imperial general who just went a little bit potty and went a bit over the top. Although the Empire also occasionally uh, hires vampires and brews, but, uh, you know, that's probably propaganda yeah. and not really true. No, no, no. 
Well, um, you know, these these are things. They're, they're they're living sentient entities. They belong in Glorantha as much as anything else. They're all there as part of the great compromise. What would you do? Kill them all? <laughs> it would be madness, wouldn't it? No, no, no. You're laughing. I'd like I'd, I'd like an answer to that, please. What would you do? Kill them all? Um, if you could use them for some useful civilizing <laughs> purpose, or just kill them all, you'd you you do what? Well, uh... you'd rather not. Think I can see that you'd rather not think about it, but luckily, the great minds that run the Lunar Empire have thought about it. They've thought long and hard on the knotty problems of chaos in Glorantha. No, if if the if the great mind of the Lunar Empire really wanted to make these people uh, productive members of society, they would actually rehabilitate them instead of just giving them money, pointing at people to kill, and then letting them loose again. That's, so that's rehabilitation. Uh, to say a different would be madness, and who would, who would expect madness <laughs> in the Lunar Empire? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but anyway, the Lunar Way cult book is coming up in a year or two or whenever it comes. Um, what is one or two of your cults that you want people to keep in mind that um, they, are, they would be awesome to initiate into? Right. Um, you, you got me there because it's a whole book of cults and they're all brilliant. <laughs> I genuinely <laughs> Um, this is going to widen your horizons for Gloranthan Gaming in a way that we can't at the moment. And I've been talking about how you could fit Lunas into a traditional RuneQuest group the way it's currently constituted, which is mm -hmm. there's one Lunar cult and a metric ton of other cults. And if you turn up saying, hi, I work for the evil empire, you are going to get crushed. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, when the Lunar Cults book comes out, that will no longer be the case. And we will <laughs> finally be able to get the kind of recognition and adoration that is ours <laughs> by right as the Lunar Empire steamrollers all opposition from sea to shining sea. And, you know, you may look quizzical, but I've read the books, you've read the books, and you're as aware as, aware as I am in the Guide to Glorantha that in the fairly near future, the Red Emperor is going to conquer the whole of Fresnella all the way as far as Sog City. He'll be washing his red sword in the waters of the Nelioni Sea. He'll be reconquering the uh, breakaway province, or it was never a province, of Sartar, uh, erecting the Takanegi Stele at the centre of Boldhome on the grounds of the Royal Palace when he celebrates his overthrow of the rebel Prince Arkat. <laughs> okay. Um, this is all going to come. So if you want to be part of the winning side in the Hero Wars, this is your chance. Um, start getting used to the idea. The Lunars are coming. They're coming back. There's a temporary setback followed by glory. And you can be part of that movement. Um, actually... By the but when it comes out. In that sense, let's say, Herr Munson. <laughs> Herr Munson. Yes. Um, do you have things to say about um, just forgetting about what the RuneQuest rulebook says and doing a full lunar campaign? Like one of the one of the things I really want to do is um, a dart competition based game that is basically Jason Bourne in the uh, in the lunar provinces. What what? It's a doddle. Yeah, it, it's a doddle. Pending the um, official version coming out, if you've got the guide to Glorantha. Mm -hmm. And if you've got the Glorantha source book, mm -hmm. and if you can get it into your head that basically Yanafaltanils is like Humarkt, except you can be resurrected and use scimitars, and Iripiontor is like Lankor Mai, except you don't have to wear a silly beard, um, and uh, Dan Five Haron is like uh, the god for thieves and assassins and the secret police, and you can go with that whichever way you want, and you can borrow things from any other RuneQuest thief cults, like the cult of Landrill that's been written up. Mm -hmm. um, 
And um, the other cults kind of fit into the way things are so that you've got people in the Lunar Empire worshipping all sorts of normal gods, because that's fine, absolutely fine by us, as long as you don't worship a god who advocates violent rebellion and overthrowing divinely sanctioned authority, we're absolutely cool with that. But 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 I mean, like, playing, playing in the lunar provinces or the lunar heartlands, like, do you think that this brings gameplay opportunities that you wouldn't find in Dragon Pass because if it's if you're you, if you're playing the same games but by just using different names for the gods it's not interesting right obviously yes but the problem is um there isn't an awful lot of official material out there to help you you've got the guide to glorantha which is a great of view. course it's, it would be for people who can you know make up stuff yes you can use our rough guide to glamour which will give you an excellent workable account of how the Lunar Empire's capital city works. Mm -hmm. You could pick up things like Chris Gidlow's Citizens of the Lunar Empire to give you a sense of what it's like at street level in Glamour. You could pick up things like um, our Life of Moonsun Freeform, which will show you the sort of plots that could be going on inside the Empire, run by the great and good, because everyone in Life of Moonsun has a very busy time trying to scheme and get ahead, get one over their enemies. There's an awful lot of stuff that normally would be uh, campaign threads that in our freeform gets exploded over the course of seven or eight hours. You could pick up my Gloranthan Manifesto, which has major sections about imperial successions. Let's hope there isn't one of those for a while. Um, it has major sections about what kind of campaign you could play inside the Lunar Empire, how you can have fun in this world of weird, illuminated decision makers, secret policemen, dart competitions and dart wars and sinister nobles constantly assassinating each other, um, double think and um, missionary work, and everyone saying how very charitable and very civilized they're being while also employing barbarian mercenaries to go and fuck you up. Uh, you can have a lot of fun with them. The problem with RuneQuest as a vehicle for that is that traditionally RuneQuest is very simulationist, and that means you have to do a lot of work. Now, luckily, there's a book that's just come out in print. I don't yet have my print copy. It's on its way to me now, called Edge of Empire by Harold Smith, which is set in one of the lunar provinces. It's a campaign pack for the bucolic lunar province of Imtha, a peaceful place most known for its cheeses and dwarfs. And Harold's book is a really good example of how you can flesh out a lunar-ruled area to be great fun. You can play in there just as ordinary people. You can play in there as storm rebels against the Empire. You can play in there as... Well, we had a whole episode with Harold on the book. So, yes, uh, we'll refer to uh, people to that. And also all the links of all the stuff you mentioned will be in the show notes. Yep, yep. Cool. But, yeah. I mean, my, my point is I'm not saying it's going to be easy if you've mm -hmm. just started playing RuneQuest and you want to run a lunar game. It's not going to be easy because the building blocks of it aren't quite there. Right. Uh, obviously, a lunar warrior is a warrior. A lunar entertainer is an entertainer. We've got the occupations in the core rules. Mm -hmm. If you want to just you know, file off the serial numbers and say, well, I'm going to play a lunar warrior who's a member of a cult that's just like Hugh Marked, only it's called Yanafaltanios, you can do that. If you want to dive into archival stuff and say, ooh, it's just like Hugh Marked, except they don't get reusable Sever Spirit, but they can be resurrected. Whoa. <laughs> That'll be fun. You can do that. Um, but we don't yet have, you know, thoroughly worked up things like cult compatibility charts and cult write-ups and cult distributions and things that you would need if you were going to run a traditional style RuneQuest game 
in the heartlands of the Lunar Empire. I'm sorry that's the case, but it is the case. And I'm not here to lie to you and say, oh, yeah, that would be easy. I've done it loads of times. It would be a lot of work. <laughs> you can make it significantly less work if you run uh, RuneQuest games the way I do, which is essentially you treat the RuneQuest rules as binding on your players, and behind the GM screen, you're basically running things a lot more like Hero Quest and Quest Worlds, we have to say nowadays, making it up as you go along and setting appropriate difficulties for the things your players encounter and flexing things up or down so as to tell a good story. And I know this is anathema to people who think RuneQuest is a tactical war game <laughs> simulator. <laughs> what can I do? I, I, I can't change their minds and I can't give them a way of telling good stories if they don't want to tell good stories. But if you want to tell good stories, I think you're going to have to at some point say, I can't simulate everything. Yeah. Mm. So some things I'm just not going to try. And if you can get that mindset, then yeah, running a game that takes you into the hearts, lands of the Lunar Empire is a doddle. You can just improvise the stuff that you don't yet have rules for. But RuneQuest, as such, does not yet support gaming in the civilized heartlands of the greatest empire Glorantha has ever known. Yeah. It will soon. It doesn't yet. <laughs> okay, we are uh, coming up to time. So I have one question, and this is mostly uh, with the angle of making like good villain or good NPCs um, that you can bring into your campaign. And it's basically the important people in the Lunar Empire are Illuminates. It's mentioned in passing in the core rulebook, but not too much explained. There's actually a reference to the uh, ever upcoming Game Master's Guide in there that has been helpful. Uh, <laughs> field for a few years i went we're we're you know we're not going to explain too much what is elimination but uh just enough that uh you can uh give some information to the listener about how cool that can be as an npc that you can bring in okay here's the thing illumination is a philosophical state of enlightenment that can be achieved through meditating on the sayings of the red goddess and there are other ways of doing it as well some rely on uh, fragmentary riddles taught by the uh, great teacher nysalor um, some of them rely on experiencing shocking and transformative events but the safest way of doing it is to meditate on the sayings of the red goddess um, and if you achieve the state of um, nirvana-like bliss that is uh, nysalor illumination uh, you realize as a fact, because it is a fact, that chaos is in itself neither evil nor inimical. Now, mm -hmm. when some people learn that, they go mad. When some people learn that, they become very dangerous. But fortunately, when people in the Lunar Empire learn that, it's consistent with what we've been teaching them all along. And they get it. And they realize that because chaos is neither evil nor inimical, it can be used for the furtherance of human goals and mortal civilizations within the world of time. We know that the Great Compromise can change and will change again, and it'll be making the world better. We'll be gradually patching up the mess that the old gods made of it when they brought forth this spatchcocked thing, and we'll be moving it towards perfection, incrementally, day by day, year by year, wane by wane. And like everything the Lunars do, our history will show you great advances, and slight retreats, and then another great advance, and another slight retreat. And this is the pattern. We've got this under control. We can use chaos. We can use chaos safely. We've been doing it for the whole of the third wane. Excuse me, the third age. That's why you're talking to me. We're not wrong. Yes. We're winning. And we're winning because we get it. <laughs> and because it also brings uh, a few adventure ideas, uh, I think one of the... Uh, 
perhaps semi-covert um, roles of the Seven Mothers cult is not just proselytizing, but also like picking out the people and the kids that might be good material for elimination um, uh, uh, training. It goes without saying. I mean, that's education. We yeah. uh, actively work to increase the number of illuminated people in the Lunar Empire and its adjacent territories. It's uh, why, why wouldn't you? Orthodox educational means Mm-hmm. And also by screwing with your minds. So yeah. you know, there's various ways, some more direct than others. And the people who are teaching you are, of course, illuminated themselves. So they will naturally choose the method that is, will be the most effic- efficacious, that will cause the least unnecessary harm. I mean, we accept the concept of necessary harm, don't we? Good, good. Glad to see <laughs> you. Um, but yes, no, no, increasing the number of people who, who who just think right, who understand the way Glorantha is and who realize that, that we can make a difference, that we aren't forced to just live this sterile existence, recapitulating the battles of entities that are locked outside of the world and only, you know, use us as their glove puppets to refight their old ways. We can throw that off. Mm-hmm. The goddess herself did. We have shown that you can make progressive change for the better inside the world, and the old gods can't stop us. The, the ones who achieved elimination but were rendered mad, you know, that's easy to picture and portray as, you know, evil, crazy sorcerers. The one who uh, achieved elimination but are uh, like the right way, I would say, would you, would you portray them dangerously as like... sane? Dangerously <laughs> sane, I would say. Um, the thing is, this is why the Lunas make such great villains, is that they are reasonable. I've been saying things that you're laughing at or looking shocked at, but they are reasonable things to say. The uh, barbarian view that uh, all truth is held by old men with long hair and beards who live up in mountains, and that ideally what we can do is, you know, bring stuff smashing down to the ground and uh, turn it into ruins, and where there is peace, let's bring warfare and fighting tribes squabbling over the remnants. We we won't try to build anything new. We'll just smash up stuff. And this is this is horrible, isn't it? This is this is vile. The idea, oh, he's a member of a civilization I don't like. Maybe maybe because they're 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 using petrol a bit too much and I don't like petrol. Maybe maybe because I think their government is run by alien greys or, you know, some other weird reason. So so actually it's okay. It's open season on them. Let's kill them all. Let's um Let's let's withdraw from civilization and go and live in ranches uh, in the mountains and arm up, tool up, have lots of weapons of death. And then if if the empire's agents ever come calling and trying to you know educate our children or make sure we're not abusing our women or whatever it is we're doing up there in in Montana or Sartar or wherever it may be, then we just kill them because that's that's a natural and normal and human way to behave. It's like no, the, 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 these are crazy things. These you, you can't embrace that. You can't you can't champion that. And this is why, you know, sometimes it's just stop, think, think about what we're saying. Are we actually wanting to role play out fantasies involving genocidally destroying a civilization because we've decided civilization is bad or because we've got a, a moral qualm about something that seems to be working absolutely fine for them, but we've decided we we, we can't stomach it any longer. And so as a result, they must all die. I, I'm going to read you a passage from the Guide to Glorantha that I think uh, more people should be aware of. It's uh, the very first words in the chapter on the Lunar Empire. And this is written by Greg Stafford. It was first published back in the mid-80s. And it says, the Lunar Empire is a theocratic empire which rules the many peoples of Peloria. Feared and hated by outsiders, 
it is probably one of the finest places to live. Tradition is appreciated and studied, but not slavishly adhered to. Opportunity abounds, and social and geographic mobility are widespread. Peace reigns. No wars have been fought here for over a hundred years. Government is stable and society content. The, quote, infernal presence of chaos, which terrorizes the outside world, is carefully avoided by most citizens, and the taint of evil is never touched except on a voluntary basis. That's the Lunar Empire. It's um, probably the finest place to live in the whole of Glorantha. It's civilized, it's modern, it's progressive, it's feminist, its gods are more human than your gods. They get it. They understand who you are. They understand what it's like to be mortal, to be suffer, to suffer, to be oppressed. They understand what it's like to feel that you've got to throw off the old ways that are holding you back and embrace something new because they lived it and now they teach you and you can do that too. Join the Lunars. We are all us. Well, that sounds like a great mic drop. Thank you for uh, talking to us, Nick. Uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. No problem. If you have one last thing to plug before you go, uh, you can do so now. But otherwise, we'll have the link to all your Johnston Compendium stuff in the show notes and people will be able to buy your Lunar stuff. Thanks for that. I think the thing I'd most like to plug at the moment is probably Harald Smith's book, Edge of Empire. People should buy that. People should read that. It's a really well done example of how to build a regional campaign source pack. He's been working on it for 30 years. So if you start now, then by 2050, you might have written something worthwhile. And I urge you to do that because we're none of us getting any younger. <laughs> but of course, you should also buy The Rough Guide to Glamour, Life of Moonsun, Crimson King, and my extraordinarily cheap Gloranthan Manifesto, if you want to understand how the Lunar Empire ticks. And if you just want to have fun playing RuneQuest, buy all of my scenarios, they're great. Awesome. The latest one is Crimson King, which I mentioned before. And it's got loads of gorgeous lunar art by the brilliant Katrin Dirim, who you should get on this show one of these days. Just Oh, yeah. We had her once, actually. Uh, but yes. You did, you did. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. And uh, sorry for running a bit late, but uh, thank you again for your time. It's a pleasure. If Julie's still awake, I'm off to watch Babylon Berlin. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of The God Learners. Our website is godlearners.com, where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. <laughs>